we've been in, in, in a series, we're in part three of a series called Bystander. And here's kind of the subline for Bystander. It's, the subtitle is John and the Rabbi from Nazareth. As we're kind of tracking along this gospel writer, John, as he kind of journeys through his relationship with Jesus, the most important thing for us to remember in this series is kind of this sort of kind of big macro thing that John is speaking of is that John in the first century, he didn't choose to follow Jesus because of faith. That John kind of chose to follow Jesus because of what he had seen and because of what he had heard. And because of what he had seen and he heard, he arrived at the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. And once he acknowledged that Jesus was his Messiah based on what he had saw and what he had heard, he placed his faith in Jesus as his Messiah and as his Savior. He didn't choose to follow Jesus because of faith. His faith was created because he chose to follow Jesus. Because of what he saw Jesus do and because of what he heard Jesus say. See, this is what John says in his gospel. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, or in other words, he says, nobody told us this. We didn't read this. We heard it, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at. And, you know, by the way, Jesus wasn't a ghost. I know some people think he was a ghost when we talked about his resurrection. He's not. He was a real person. I saw him. And then even better, I, I, I touched him. I was able to touch him with my own hands. The, the life, the, the life appeared. And I think John kind of struggled to, to, to maybe express exactly what he meant when, when he's, he's kind of documenting this, that that this guy, that Jesus, my friend, the rabbi, the, the, the person I would later declare as my Messiah and my Savior, that, that when he came, life came. He brought life not just to me, but to everyone he met. That life appeared, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you, not what we read about or what we heard about, but what we have seen and what we have heard. And as an old man, as, as an old man, we kind of assume this about John, that, that as John's documenting this, it, per, perhaps there was a bunch of young men and young women around him saying, John, tell us your story. Tell, tell us what it was like to follow Jesus. So John kind of documents his encounters, his, his experience with Jesus. He, he, he probably verbally talks this out and someone's writing it down for him because chances are at this point in his life, as he's much older, it's hard for him to see and it's hard for him to write. He says, here's what it's like. Here's what I want you, I want you to, to know and to believe. I want you not just to know, but I want you to know so much that you would believe that Jesus is your Lord and your Messiah because, because of what I had seen and because of what I had heard. I'm not telling you secondhand information. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what my experience was with Jesus. And John says this to us almost 2,000 years later. He said, here's the reason that, that, that I, I think you should take the time to investigate this. These things... These things that, that I have written, these things that I've kind of selectively pulled out of my experience with Jesus, I, I, I pulled them out so that you might believe. I, I want you to respond the same way I did, that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that I came to this conclusion because of my experience and my time with him, because I saw him do these things and I heard him say these things. I watched him bring life to those who, who, were, who were, in one case, physically dead, but even spiritually dead. I spent time with the Son of God, he would say. And that by believing in him, that by believing he is the Messiah and the Son of God, that by believing that you may have the same kind of life that, I, that I've discovered through him, that you may have life in his name. He says, so here's my, my agenda. I don't want you to be confused. He's, John didn't follow Jesus because of faith. John followed Jesus because of what he had seen and what he had heard. And he says, I want that very same thing for you. 
I don't want secondhand information to come your way. I don't want you to believe because of belief and have faith because of faith. I want you to come to the very same conclusion I did. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to compile my gospel. I'm going to compile seven stories, or as we've been calling them, seven signs, seven miraculous events. And the reason it's really interesting, John doesn't call them seven miracles. He calls them seven signs because they are signs that pointed somewhere. He said, when I kind of look back over my experience with Jesus, these weren't just done by happenstance. These weren't acts of kindness. These weren't even just miracles, but they were signs that Jesus was giving along the way to substantiate some of the things he was saying. Because let's be honest, he was saying some really crazy things, wasn't he? He he declared some really incredible things about himself. And why would anyone believe that? Unless he was able to, to substantiate what he was declaring, to substantiate the claims he made. He said, so Jesus gave seven signs to substantiate who he was, that he was in fact the Messiah, that he was in fact the Son of God. That is the conclusion I came to. And he would say, that's the conclusion I hope you come to as well. It's like John saying, this is what convinced me, and I'm hoping it convinces you. Now, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we're two signs into this. We've already uncovered two of those. We're at the third one. If you have an English Bible and you kind of read through it, English Bibles come with headings. So the heading for this one, if you're following along, is healing on the Sabbath. If you haven't been with us and you're catching up, I would encourage you to take a look at our last two messages so you can keep up with where we're headed and the signs that Jesus has given up to this point. But here's what we do know. Jesus is kind of a several-day journey from Jerusalem. He's out around the Sea of Galilee or somewhere in that vicinity, uh, um, Sea of Galilee in Cana. Cana. He actually, uh, he's off to the left if you're kind of looking at a map. He's off to the left of the Sea of Galilee. But he's way north of Jerusalem. This is what you need to know. And, and, and he and his guys, um, they've just done this incredible thing, right? Somebody shows up. They kind of heard rumors about Jesus and they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to heal my son who's about to die. And Jesus really doesn't do anything. He says, just go on your way. Just head home, dude. It's okay. And on the way home, the guy finds out that Jesus has, that he's been healed at the same time Jesus said that, that somehow this sign, this incredible thing happened, that this man had to do what we have to do even 2,000 years later, right? The same thing we have to do today, that we have to kind of take Jesus at his word, that we have to take Jesus, maybe even at somebody else's word, like the gospel writer John, to take him at somebody else's word, to believe what somebody else has written about him or somebody else has said about him. So this happens about five or six days later. He, Jesus and his posse, his group of disciples, they make their way down to Jerusalem. And here's where our account picks up today. I'll, I'll read it to you. This says, John chapter 5. Sometime later, because it took a, uh, uh, them a while to get there, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus wasn't actually south of Jerusalem to go up. He was actually north of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was the city on the hill. So wherever you are, coming from the south, the north, the east, or west, you had to go up to Jerusalem. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And there is in Jerusalem, and John's giving us an account with a lot of details because he wants you to know where this actually happened. And even more than that, when this actually happened. That some people think that this was written, that the gospels were written a long time after the life and the occurrences of Jesus and that some things were lost through time and, and, and translation. But the account that John gives us, the details that John gives us is very specific to a time. He says, I want you to understand that this happened very soon after the events of Jesus' life. That this wasn't hundreds of years later. This wasn't even you know, multiple decades of years later. This was very close to the events surrounding Jesus' life. There is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called, which is even currently called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So he describes in great detail, he's been there and he says, I've seen this. Here, a great number, like a multitude of disabled people used to lie. 
the blind. And now he starts giving us specifics, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. These were the most like desperate people. This was the most desperate group of people. Now you need to understand in ancient times, doctors were scarce. Doctors didn't, didn't know very much. And in fact, the reason doctors didn't know very much is because they weren't allowed to inspect dead bodies. There was actually a law in Rome around the first and second century, but specifically during this time um, that doctors couldn't inspect dead bodies. So here, here's what doctors would do. This is kind of gross, but doctors would rush to get to a body before it, it had died so that they could perform essentially a living autopsy. Now that's scary, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of horrible to think of. So doctors didn't have all, a lot of information because they couldn't inspect the dead bodies. They couldn't perform autopsies. So doctors were not only scarce, doctors were also quite scary. And in, in this certain time period around this pool of Bethesda, um, there was this idea uh, <clears throat> that the pool would the waters would be stirred, and when the waters would be stirred, um, they would they would roll these um, these bodies into it. And, and there was this idea that when the waters were stirred, an angel was stirring the waters, and the first person that got in would receive their healing. Since then, they've uncovered this pool in Bethesda, and they found that it was fed uh, um, not just from um, <clears throat> from a, a stream, but it was also fed un- underneath it from a natural spring. And that perhaps as the water would come up from the spring, it would cause bubbles on the surface and it would look disturbed. And as soon as the water looked disturbed, all of the disabled people would try to get in first. And the first person that was in, the rumor was they would be healed. So Jesus walks in into this area. And I promise you, this is the area that like healthy people avoided because this was the area that was just kind of looked at as this was an area of desperation. This was an area of sickness. This was an area of, of um, just a kind of awfulness. And this is an area that had been skipped over by many religious people who would avoid areas like this. This is an area where, where, where officials would have to walk in and, and occasionally find a dead body and remove the dead body as people were left there for, for days and sometimes maybe even weeks waiting for their chance to be healed. John continues, he says, one who had been there for 38, 38 years, one who had been an invalid there for 38 years, Jesus sees him, the text says, when Jesus saw him, this particular inv- individual lying there, he asked about him, or perhaps it was because maybe he was the oldest one there, but we don't really know why. We just know that Jesus asked about this one individual, and he learned that he had been there in this condition for a long time. And Jesus decides, this is an opportunity for a sign. He leans down, and I don't think anybody kind of heard this conversation. I don't think Jesus wanted everyone to hear this conversation. It sounds like a really strange question, but Jesus asked this man an incredible question. That, that I think is a really powerful question. And I think it might be a question that you might need to answer, e- even today as you're watching this at home, as you're watching this online. Jesus leans down and, and perhaps whispers in this man ear this question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? L- let me ask you, do you want to get well? Not everybody does. S- some of you ha- have been complaining and complaining and complaining and You've not done what it takes to get well because you, you know, you know it, sometimes it's harder to get well than it is to be sick. Sometimes it's harder to have the hum- humility to ask for help than it is to remain sick. Sometimes staying sick, you, you get things you wouldn't get if you were healthy. So let, let me just ask this and then we'll keep going. Whether it's an actual physical ailment, maybe it's, it's a habit. Do you want to get well? I know we all make excuses. Yeah, I will eventually. Yeah, you know, I'll get there at some point. Yeah, I need to, I need to, I need to. Let's just be really honest with ourselves. It's just you. This week you're sitting at home. 
Do you want to get well? You see, I, I think maybe even now you have to pause this message and go to a mirror. Maybe after the message, you need to go to a mirror. And you need to ask yourself this question. Do I really want to get well? Or, or do I like this habit so much? I just say I want to get well. And I'm not willing to put in what it takes to get well. Sometimes the price of getting well seems harder than it does to stay sick or to stay in your habit. To, st- to continue to remain a serial dater so that every relationship ends the same way over and over and over again. Sometimes it's harder to ask for help than it is to get well. But if the help is available to you, if the power is available to you, if the resources are available to you for your sake, and maybe you need to hear this, for the sake of those that you love or those that love you, would you get well? Jesus asked this man, do you want to get well? Which seems like just a crazy question to ask a man who's sick. I love this. This man who's lying sick, 38 38 years, right? Just, uh, Just a horrible ailment looks up at Jesus, having no idea who Jesus is, and he says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Which to us might sound you know, a little humorous because you know, this, is, this was a tale. Of course the angel wasn't stirring the water. Of course if you get rolled in, you're not going to get healed. But for a moment, imagine this scene. Imagine the, the, how horrific the scene would look. Some people are waiting there and as the water gets stirred, they may be pushing their friends in or pushing their their paralyzed people in or blind people are trying to stumble in the water first. We have no idea what what this scene actually looked like, but very likely there there were dead bodies around the pool. Very likely there were were bodies that have drowned in the water. I mean, this was was horrible. This was desperation. This, for some, was hopelessness. Perhaps that's what you're feeling as we continue to walk through what's happening in our communities, in our world right now with this virus. But Jesus, we don't know why he chose this one man, but he chose this one man and he says something that just, just so Jesus. I don't know that anyone else would say something like this. Jesus looking at this one man who's been lame for years and years and years. says two words to him. Get up. Of course, well, that just seems so simple, Jesus. Get up. In the Greek, this is really interesting. In the Greek, it says, wake up. In the, in, in the Greek, it can be translated as rise up. It can be translated as, as come to life. It's like Jesus is literally saying to this man, hey, come back alive, rise up, wake up. Don't stay where you are, get up. And then he, conclu- he finishes his verse. Get up and pick up your mat and walk. And John says this, I imagine as he's dictating this, he's, he's beginning to get excited and beginning to remember the situation and how radical this situation was. And he says, at once, like immediately, the man was cured and he stood up and he picked up his mat and he walked away. I mean, just get that. He's been there for years and years, lame, and he's surrounded by other lame, blind, paralyzed people, all waiting to get into this pool. And Jesus looks down and he says, dude, get up, get your mat, go home. And the guy gets up and rolls up his mat and tucks it under his arm and starts walking. And then he turns around to say thanks to Jesus, but but before he could, Jesus is gone. We we learn later in this story that Jesus vanished back into the crowd with his posse. The guy couldn't find him, so he goes on his way. But by doing this, we find that Jesus, maybe even intentionally, whacked the hornet's nest. Because John tells us the day on which he cured this man was the Sabbath. Now on the Sabbath in Jerusalem specifically, you know, in, in all the uh, areas 
around the temple, <clears throat> the Pharisees are kind of walking around making sure nobody's violating the laws, especially the laws on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day. They see this man carrying a mat. Not only is he carrying a mat, but he's walking towards the temple. And I think the reason he's walking towards the temple is one of two reasons. Either he hadn't walked, uh, he hadn't been in the temple for, for many, many years. Maybe he's never been in the temple, but all the people who are coming into Jerusalem are walking toward the temple anyway. So he's just kind of going along with the crowd, right? He's, he's got his mat under his arm and he's, he's following the people right, right, into, the, right into the temple. <clears throat> and, and, and there are some of the religious teachers, some of the, the people like me, right? Some of the, the teachers of God's word. And they see this man carrying his mat, and the text says to him, the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat, which it actually didn't. The law didn't forbid him from doing that. The tradition <clears throat> would forbid him from carrying a mat. The tradition of the elders, or sometimes it's called the oral Torah. Uh, the, the theory was that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with, with the Torah, with, with the laws of God, that he also came down with the written Torah. He came down with an oral Torah. This is, the, 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 the tradition was then handed from Moses down to, to Joshua, then to the judges, then to you know, the, the prophets, all the way to the Pharisees. And the idea is that this is kind of a fence, if you would, around the law. This is to keep people from ever getting close to breaking the law. They, this, this oral Torah is a fence around that to keep people there. And it, it, just to make things even more in, incredibly difficult for people, uh, on top of all these other laws, is that this, this oral Torah, this unwritten law, if you will, had 39 categories. Get this, not 39 things. 39 categories of things people couldn't do, people couldn't even get close to because they might break the law. One of those categories was their operations on the Sabbath. And one of the things in those categories basically said you couldn't do any work on it. You couldn't pick anything up and move it from one place to another on the Sabbath. To them, this was a clear violation of one of the Ten Commandments, which was given to us in Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But the point of this commandment is, is really just to take a break from labor, to take a break from production, to take a break from, from your job, to take a break from whatever it is that you typically do, to take a break, to relax, to enjoy time, to enjoy life, to enjoy your family. The, the rule was never, was never get, uh, given so that we wouldn't, we wouldn't do things to help people, right? It wasn't ever given, uh, you know, don't, don't do this, uh, you know, uh, don't show love by, by doing anything generous on the Sabbath. Don't, don't do anything nice for people on the Sabbath because you might be breaking the law. This is what happens. This is what happens when, when certain people, in every religion this, this happens, when certain people forget. This is what happens when people begin to ignore. This is what happens when any kind of religious person, when we forget the why behind the what. To be more specific, and, and maybe just to bother you a little bit, and you might hate me for this, but that's okay. You know, we're not seeing each other right now. You're, you're at home in front of your computer, com computer, your computer, your screen. You might hate me for this, but, but, but I'm going to make it even a little bit more uh, personal to us. This is what happens when defending a theological system. This is what happens when defending an ideology. This is what happens when defending a political agenda. This is what happens when defending a party loyalty. When embracing party loyalty takes precedence over the people these things claim to serve, this is what happens. This is what happens when embracing this becomes more important than the people that th these things were designed to serve and to benefit. And it's very difficult to see this in a mirror. So before you get all excited about this and you think, Jim, this is exactly what other people need to hear. This is what people need to hear, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send it to other people. Right? This is what we do. We, all, we always go to the other. Right? This is what the other theological system, you know, this is what, where they're wrong, and this is what the other ideology, and this is the, the other political party, and this is, this is the, the, the other whatever it might be. 
we always point to the other. But, but before you're so quick to say, hey, you know, this message is so good. I'm going to share this with my mother-in-law because, you know, she's not going to hear it from me, but maybe she'll hear it from you, Jim. This is what she needs to hear. But before, before you do that, here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to stop for a moment. You need to take a look in the mirror. See, here's what Jesus would say. And say, but, but before you, you get all excited and you clap about this, we all need to look in the mirror. We, we must be careful. And, and more importantly, we must be honest. Because when what's best for people is no longer what's most important to you, you're at odds with God. When what, what's, what's best for people is no longer what's important to me, I'm at odds with God. And the reason I say this is because John, who brings us this story, he kind of interrupts his own story when, when he's telling about the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. He's almost like, I'm not even sure if Nicodemus even got what Jesus was trying to say, but, but let me break it down so that you, my audience, my readers understand what Jesus says. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the people, for God so loved all the people of all the world, for every generation of every race, of every nationality, of every color, of every tongue. It, it didn't matter. For God so loved the world that he would send his only son, Jesus, my friend, my savior, my Messiah, to pay for sin. So that everybody could be reconnected to God. You see, God's priority is the race made in his image. The story continues. They said to the man who had just been healed, it's, a, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids that you carry them out. Although we know it wasn't the law, it was just kind of their oral tradition of the law. But the man replied, I love this, right? This is so great. He's got the mat over his shoulder. He's kind of walking along, kind of finding his legs. You know what I mean? For the first time, he's maybe a little wobbly because he hadn't walked in literal years. <clears throat> the man, he didn't even know who he was. This is just, it's so beautiful. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And the reason I picked up my mat and walked is because, because you religious leaders for years and years and years, you stepped around me. For, for, for years and years and years, you told me that I was here because it was my fault or because it was my parents' fault. For, for years and years and years, you, you've avoided me and you said it was my sin. You see, they had this belief and we're going to find this later out with John and some of his other t teachings about Jesus. They had this belief that, that if a pregnant woman went to a pagan temple, that not only was she guilty and was she in sin, but her unborn child was sin as well. Like just because he was there, that unborn child in the mother's womb, he would suffer from sin. He would pay for his mother's sin for years and years and years. As a matter of fact, at one point, the disciples are with Jesus and they're kind of walking along and there's this blind man and they say, Jesus, why is this man blind? Was it his sin or his mother's sin? So, so his whole life, this religious system had convinced him that he was wrong, that he was in sin, right? The, the, the reason he's lying there is because of something he's done. And he's like, I've racked my brain. I've, I've done nothing wrong. I, maybe my parents did something, but I don't know what it is. My parents, maybe they even left me here and I don't, I don't know who they are. But you've avoided me and you've made me feel guilty. Then this guy comes along. And this guy says, hey, man, get up and walk. You're healed. He says, so I'm just going to do whatever that guy tells me to do. So they asked the logical question, which I'm sure we would have asked if we were there. Well, who is this guy? Right, right? They asked him, who is the fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Who is the man who defies the laws of the Sabbath? Because this man not only instructed you to violate the laws on the Sabbath, but by healing you, <clears throat> he defied the laws of the Sabbath because they had another oral tradition that you couldn't administer medicine on the Sabbath. Like if this guy was going to pray for you and you were going to get healed, why didn't he wait till, till you know, the day after the Sabbath? Why didn't he just wait just a few more hours and he could have done that? No, instead he did it on the Sabbath. So you're in violation of the law. He's in violation of the law. Who is this man? The man who was healed, he had no idea who it was. 
for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. I mean, let's be honest, you, you can't make this kind of stuff up. I'm sure as John is recounting this story, he just kind of chuckles because what happens next, in, in my opinion, what happens next is one of the funniest things in, in the New Testament. Now, what happens next isn't, isn't my interpretation. It's an interpretation that I have heard from someone else, but I found no biblical commentator who kind of agrees with this. When they hit this part of the text, they're kind of like, well, we're not really sure. This is kind of difficult. We're not really, we don't really understand what Jesus meant when he said this. I tend to think if you don't look at this text as a theologian and a commentator and you look at this like a human, like a, like a, a person, you, you kind of see the joke. You kind of see the humor. Here's what Jesus says to this man. L- later, so this guy goes up to the temple. He's carrying his mat. This is so cool. Later, Jesus found him. M- maybe Jesus was looking for him. M- maybe he just kind of bumped into him. But <clears throat> however that worked out, Jesus kind of bumps into this man at the temple. And he sees the man and he says to the man, see, you are well again. And the guy turns around completely surprised. He's like, man, it's you. Who are you? Jesus begins to tell him. And he's like, I'm sure just expressing his gratitude. Thank you. You know, I, I, People have avoided me. People have made me feel guilty. People have made me feel like I deserve to be there. But, but you're different. And then I'm sure Jesus, in the midst of the conversation, knowing what's happening, knowing that this man's been accused of sinning, kind of laughs and perhaps puts his hand on the shoulder, maybe, maybe on the shoulder of the arm who, that's still holding the mat. And Jesus kind of looks at him and says, now stop sinning. Not, not joking like people should continue to sin. No, in, in no ways. I think what he's saying is, is, is hey, <clears throat> this mat you're carrying, remember, they just accused you of sinning. So stop sinning. And then he's, he goes on to say, or something worse might happen to you. Like, think about this. What worse can happen to this man? He's been, he's been paralyzed and lame for 38 years. Like, what, what are the Pharisees going to do? Kick him out of the temple? Say, like, man, I, I, was, I never went to the temple. Uh, what, what are they going to do? What worse is going to come upon him? I think Jesus is kind of taking a jab. Like, yeah, stop sinning or those guys are going to do something bad to you, right? Like, like, how could it get any worse? They don't appreciate what God's doing in this man's life. And Jesus knows it. And I think he's taking a jab at him. You better stop sinning. You better stop carrying that thing around. Ha, ha, ha. Or, or something worse might happen to you. See, what's interesting now, and this is what I think what John's kind of getting at, is that when you learn to follow Jesus, like John learned to follow Jesus, when you follow John, who's following Jesus, and you in turn follow Jesus, this, this religious idea, you begin to lose fear of that. The, the, the religious people that, that try to bring guilt and shame, you begin to lose fear of that. When you recognize who Jesus is, and for some of you, you need to hear this, because this goes way beyond guilt. Right? You, you never ever go to church, but you're still living with this guilt of a religious system. You just can't seem to get past it. But when you discover who Jesus is, you will lose your fear of religion. When you choose to follow Jesus, religion will lose its grip on you. So just follow John. Just follow Jesus. So Jesus and this man, they have this little, this little moment at the temple. The guy's like, well, you know, the Pharisees and the leaders of, and, and, you know, who teach the law, they want to know who this guy is. So he takes his mat, finishes his conversation with Jesus, and he walks over to the Pharisees, and I'm sure with his mat still in hand, still working on the Sabbath, right? <clears throat> Holding his mat, because now he's, he's carried it from where he was to the temple, meets Jesus, then back to the Pharisees, and he kind of points to the Pharisees, hey, hey, the man that you told, the, the, man, uh, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. And then so because of this, because, <clears throat> because of Jesus doing these things on the Sabbath, He's violated the Sabbath as well, according to their laws, not to God's actual law, to their oral tradition, to the tradition of the elders. The Jewish leaders begin to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus begins to throw it back, right back in his face. John must have, have loved retelling this part of the story. 
In his defense, Jesus says to them, my father is always at his work to this very day. I too am working. It's like, guys, God didn't take a day off. Like what happens if something bad happens on the Sabbath? Are you going to wait till, you know, till the day after to pray about it? Like, no, you pray and God hears and God responds. God's still working. He's working all the time. God's at work all the time. So am I. I'm just doing what God's doing. I'm just doing what my father's doing, right? Like father, like son. For this reason, and this is, this is crazy, but for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Who does he think he is? Exactly. That's the question, isn't it? Who does he think he is? We talked last week about how Jesus walked in, into the temple and flipped over tables and chased out the money, the money uh, uh, borrowers and, and the, those who were selling the, 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 the inadequate or, or the deficient offerings. And they didn't ask, what are you doing? They asked the question, who do you think you are? And I think John would say, that's the question. That's the question we all need to wrestle with. Who do you think he is? Because that's the issue. That, that's the, the, the point of this. That's why Jesus did what he did. So people would arrive at that, at that conclusion without him having to force people to believe who he was. Who do you think he is? The guy's making himself equal with God. Exactly. Who would do that? How would you substantiate that claim? John says, just keep following me on this journey. Very truly, I, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Journey, this is an extraordinary statement by Jesus. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this to his 21st century audience, to you and to me, to the 14th century people, and, you know, to the 9th century people, to the 1st century people, to every people at every age in every language. Do you want to know what God is really like? What a crazy question, isn't it? What a confusing question. How do we even figure that out? Do you want to know what God is really like? Jesus would say, just watch me. Do you want to know what God would actually do in a circumstance like this? Let, let's, let's let it hit home. Do you want to know what God would actually do in a time like this with the coronavirus and, and, and all the, 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 the chaos and the pandemonium and, and, and the anxiousness? Jesus would say, just watch me. Do you want to know what God would actually <clears throat> say in a time like this? Just listen to me. Do you want to know what God would actually do in a time like this? He would say, just follow me. Just, I, I, know, I know it's been complicated in the past, but just follow me. And then he th says to them, and he says to the people like me, and he says, gentlemen, I understand why this is confusing for you, because you've studied the scriptures, what, what they would call the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. You've searched the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But there's no life in the text. These are the very scriptures that testify, get this, about me, about Jesus, about the Son of God, that you refuse to come to me, to have, <clears throat> to have life, and, and that's our word, right? To have life, you refuse it. He would say, gentlemen, I understand the confusion, but you've opted for the written over the living. You've chosen an interpretation instead of the demonstration. And I understand uh, until now you may have had, had an excuse. Up until now, right, all you had was the text. Up until now, all you had was the prophets. Up until now, all you had were the stories. All you had were the words of Abraham. All you had were the sayings of David. Up until now, all, all you had was, was the Sinai covenant. I understand that. But no more. 
No more. Because, and to use John's words, he would have said to them, guys, look, the word has become flesh. All of scripture pointed to me. I'm standing here in front of you. John was saying, that's why I followed him. That's why I believe. That's why in, in, in that moment, I, I, I'm dictating this story. All of my life got turned upside down. My, my friends are dead. I'm not even sure where the rest of the, where the, rest of the apostles are and the disciples are. I, I'm not sure what's happening in Jerusalem, but it, it, it could be under siege and the temple might even be destroyed at this point. I, I, all I know is that with my life completely turned upside down and, and how appropriate for where we were sitting today. That my life can feel completely upside down. That, 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 that you know, the media is flooding us with, with information that's making us fearful and our community seems to be turned upside down and my life seems like it's a wreck. And John would say, yet I gazed into the eyes of life. The mystery is completely solved. I, I'm a living commentary, John would say, on everything that has come before. And Jesus would say, all of it. All of it pointed to me. This is your sign. This is why I'm here. To show you what my father is like. To tell you what my father wants to say. To do what my father wants to do. And for us, this is why the gospels are so important. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In a world filled with, with just political and moral and religious and ideological ideas and assumptions and, 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 and fear and anxiousness, with all of this tension, God made it easy and God made it simple. God showed up and he spoke up and he was so incredibly clear. And here's what perhaps he was even most clear about. And, and for some of you, you're, you're going to love this. For others of you, you, you might hate this. That's okay. I think you need to wrestle with this. Because of the way some of us were raised in religious circles, this might rub us the wrong way. But as it relates to this particular narrative, as it relates to the healing on the Sabbath, as it relates to religious tension and ideological tension, the tension of Rome versus the Jews in the first century, the point is so clear. And if we get this right, this changes the world. And that's not hyperbole. If we get this right, this message changes the world. It changes because once upon a time, a group of disenfranchised Jewish people who had nothing but a dead Messiah, they said rose from the dead, got this right. And this is no exaggeration. Every skeptic agrees. And every idea that I'm about to share with you shaped Western civilization. And it's simply this, that the you beside you, that the you you're sitting by right now, if you're watching this at home, or the you sitting beside you in the car as you're listening to this on your way to work, the you who's going to sit beside you at work, the you who beside you in your neighborhood, the you, the you beside you in your community, the you beside you to your left and to your right in front of you or behind you, the you beside you must take priority over the potentially flawed view because we've all, we've all got something wrong. We've all, we've all misbelieved some kind of information. Our, our views have all changed over time. Our views have changed. But the you beside you must take priority over the potentially flawed view that you carry on the inside of you. Your views are going to change. But people are people. And they are made in the image of God. And they have to take priority over our ever-changing views. And you say, yeah, but, but, but Jim, aren't, aren't, the, aren't there any absolutes? Yes. God. God is an absolute. And that's, that's what makes this so powerful. Here's the thing. I, I don't always know what to believe, and either do you. 
In fact, our, our beliefs continually change. I don't always know who to believe. You don't always know who to believe. But when you read the Gospels, here's what's incredibly clear. We almost always know what love requires of us. And that's enough. So I want to I leave you with this question. Does your version of religion or politics get in the way of loving people that God loves? Does your version of religion or politics get in the way of loving the people that God loves? And, and let me be even more specific than this. Does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people God loves? If so, friends, you, you got the wrong version. And here's why I say that, because John is the person. John is, is the first person who ever put these words to, to, to paper, whoever, whoever maybe orally said these words that somebody else could write them down. John, seeing everything go on around him, knowing that in the midst of these circumstances that, that, that he's an old man, that he's being basically left to kind of live out his life and die, that all of his friends have died and that Jerusalem has been turned over and that his, his, his Messiah, his Savior, has, has risen to heaven. All of this happening in the midst of his life, John still penned these words. God is love. God is love. So when you get on the wrong side of love, you're on the wrong side of God. And if your religion or, or, or politics or, or anything else gives you permission to treat a, a person, you're on the wrong side. Does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving the people that God loves? Because the power of the gospel is, is this. And Jesus said, I've come to show you how to get it right. But here's the deal. Even when you don't get it right, I'm going to pay for your sin of not getting it right. Now, would you just follow me? Would you just follow me? And would you be on a journey with me, figuring out how to get it right and how to love people the way I love them? What an amazing invitation, isn't it? What an invitation. It's so powerful. And here, here's the thing, and I, I'm, I'm done. We should want this to be true. We should want this to be true before we're ever convinced that it's true, that God is love and that Jesus was God in the flesh. Allow me to, to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you, God, for this incredible uh, uh, story, Lord, that John documented for us. God, that is, in fact, so incredibly true, and it has God so incredibly meaningful. L Lord, th that you valued l loving people and caring for people o over uh, almost anything, that you showed us, God, the, the, the true definition, God, the, the true example or illustration of God being love. God, and I pray that we would see that, that we would begin to ask ourselves that question, Lord, what does love require of us? What is our version of Christianity? Does it cause us to love people that God loves or does it cause us to mistreat people that God loves? And perhaps if we find ourselves on the ladder, Lord, then we realize we're on the wrong side. And that the thing that Jesus wants from all of us is to love people the way that he has loved us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to see that. And you'd give us the courage, Lord, to take a step in that direction. Father, finally, I, I pray for our communities. I pray for what's going on in our communities. I pray that you would be with us, that you would help us be that instrument of love to the people around us, Lord, to the people in our neighborhoods, maybe to the people we know who are struggling, God, financially or, or maybe with, with an illness, with, with sickness to some degree, maybe just with paralyzing fear, that we would be that instrument of love for them. God, I pray for our government officials, for those in our community who are making these decisions, that you would give, those, give them wisdom to navigate this event this occurrence in our community and God for us as a church that you would give us Lord an overwhelming desire to show the people around us the goodness that you've already showed us the love of Jesus that has changed our lives let us show us show that to the rest of the world 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Journey, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. I hope you have a great week. Stay healthy, be safe, love those around you and encourage them, and we'll see you back here next time for part four of Bystander. Take care.